Friday, 31st of October 2014. This is HPR episode 1630 entitled Bare Metal Programming on the Raspberry Pi, Part 2. It is hosted by Gabriel Evenfire and is about 50 minutes long. Feedback can be sent to Evenfire at sdf.org or by leaving a comment on this episode. The summary is. This episode discusses interrupt handling and program loading using the X-Modem protocol. This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello Hacker Public Radio, this is Gabriel Evenfire, and this is going to be the second episode in a series on bare metal programming in the Raspberry Pi. In the first episode in this series, I talked about how to get yourself set up for development for bare metal programming on the Raspberry Pi, how to get your development tools installed, how to get your software to compile so that it can be loaded onto the Pi, how to actually get it onto the SD card so it would be loaded, and also finally how to write a small program that used the serial driver for I.O. to send and receive data across a simple USB serial cable. So in this episode I'm going to build on that a little bit and talk about some interrupt handling and then from there we'll talk about how to take the serial code that we had before and turn it into interrupt driven serial code and also from there how one can build a loader from the serial communications with the Raspberry Pi using the X modem protocol. Okay, so let's start with interrupts. So an interrupt is a type of exception in the ARM chip. There are eight types of exceptions. Well, seven, but one of them is unused. An exception is a condition that causes the chip to stop whatever it's doing and immediately saves its current working state and transfer control to a specified instruction at a specified address. There are actually two different types of exceptions that pertain to interrupts. Regular interrupts and fast interrupts. In this episode I'm just going to talk about let's say regular interrupts. So what do I mean by an interrupt? Well an interrupt is usually where some peripheral in the system asserts to the ARM chip that it needs some sort of attention. The ARM, as a consequence, interrupts current program execution and transfers it, as I said, to a specific instruction. 
Okay. So, to be more specific, when something, say like the serial port or the graphics card, wants to get the attention of the ARM processor, it asserts the interrupt line. And when it does that, the ARM processor remembers what instruction was just about to execute, that is, what address of the memory was just about to be executed, plus 4, due to the effect of the instruction pipeline. And it saves this value in register 14, which is the link register used to save the program counter for function calls. It then changes the mode of the processor to IRQ mode, interrupt request. It also swaps in a new stack pointer so that the interrupt handler will not be operating in the same stack space as the program that was just running. It also disables interrupts so that it can't be interrupted while it is running the interrupt handler. Okay. Finally, control will jump to address 24. That is memory location 24. And the reason it is 24 is because interrupts are exception type 6 and an exception jumps to 4 times the exception type number as the address where it will start executing. Now if you can remember from the first podcast that I did in this series, what we've put in that location is an instruction that loads the program counter with the contents of the program counter plus 24 bytes, as in whatever is stored at the memory location of the current program counter plus 24 bytes, in other words, at address 48. And what we've put there is the address of a subroutine, which in the assembly code is called exh underscore irq for exception handler for irqs. Okay, now the exh irq function doesn't actually do very much in and of itself. It leaves most of the heavy lifting for interrupt handling to a C routine called IRQU handler. But before it transfers control to that function, it first needs to save all of the state that came from the previously executing program. So it stores those on the IRQ stack, basically saving all the registers except for the stack pointer, which is private to the interrupt handler, and the program counter, which is currently where we are executing, and we don't want to change that. Then, and only then, does it call the IRQ handler, with interrupts again still disabled. When the IRQ underscore U underscore handler function returns, the EXH underscore IRQ function then restores all of the saved pointers from the stack, and finally, it executes an instruction which subtracts 4 from the link register while updating uh, program status registers, and it stores that result to the program counter. 
Now, it turns out that that action, performing an ALU operation with the status flags, the status flags update bit set, and writing to the program counter, is actually a special signal to the ARM that we are returning from an exception handler. And so it takes the saved state that it stashed away when the program hit the exception handler and it reinstates it. Uh, and our operation, of course, restores the program counter to the next instruction that it was supposed to execute. However, this special sequence also makes sure to swap back in the control status of the previously running task and also to re-enable interrupts. And it does all of this atomically so that you can be guaranteed that nothing uh, is amiss when control resumes after processing the interrupt. Okay, so that's how we handle our interrupts correctly so that we can stop what we were doing, do something else, and then resume what we were doing as if nothing ever happened. Okay. So now let's talk about how the IRQ underscore U underscore handler function works. It very simply will read the registers that say which peripherals have interrupts that are pending, and for each one it will try to call a specific function to handle that interrupt, if that function has been registered. So, to be more specific, there is a global array of function pointers, which the programmer must initialize to null, because again, we don't have a loader that will automatically initialize global data structures. When the IRQUHandler function is invoked, it checks to see which interrupts have fired, and for each one it checks whether the function pointer corresponding to that interrupt is null or not, and if it isn't null, it will invoke the function pointer. Uh, that is, call into the handler for that specific interrupt. Now, the one th little bit further uh, bit of nuance to this is how do we check to see which interrupts fired, which peripheral it was, for example, that triggered the interrupt in the first place, and there may have been more than one. The Raspberry Pi has three control status registers that contain the list of pending interrupts. There's the pending basic register, and then the pending interrupt register 1 and pending interrupt register 2. And the pending basic register has a few unique interrupts of its own, and then it has interrupts from the pending interrupt register 1 and pending interrupt register 2 that, in the system designer's mind, were the most likely to be fired so that the interrupt handler can manage those with low latency. What the IRQUHandler function does is it reads each of these registers in turn, and it uses the findFirstSet operation to quickly identify which bits are set in each of those registers. 
and for each one of those for each one of those invoke its appropriate interrupt handler. Now for those of you who haven't done a lot of systems programming, find first set is a very common operation. It just finds the first bit in a word that is non-zero. In this case, I have an accelerated version of this function based on the count leading zeros instruction that is native to the arm. One can search for the first bit set starting from the lowest bits to the highest bits by taking your bit mask, XORing it with the bit mask minus one, and what this will do is actually create a mask of all ones leading up to the first bit that was originally set, and that bit will also be one, and everything after that will be zero. And then if you count the leading zeros, that tells you the number of zeros leading up to that first bit, and then it, if you subtract that from the word size minus one, you get the bit position of the first bit set. So, put more mathematically, you get find first set of x is equal to 31 minus the number of leading zeros in the quantity x xored with the quantity x minus 1. Okay, so that's just our quick way of finding which interrupt fired. We could have actually searched for the interrupt number from left to right, maybe that might have been a little quicker, but the key point is you don't want to be iterating over all uh, 64 plus 8, all 72 possible interrupts going, is this one set, is this one set, is this one set, every single time an interrupt fires. You want to get in and out as fast as you can. Okay. Okay, so that tells you how the interrupt handling is structured in my code anyways, in far as how I do it on the bare metal and the Raspberry Pi. I also make use of a couple of other utility functions for managing interrupts. So I've already told you about IRQ underscore U underscore handler. There's also IRQ underscore init. This is a block of code that one should call early in one's program, and what it really just does is initializes that global block of interrupt vectors to all null pointers. And it also marks a private variable to denote that it interrupts have been disabled once. This is a reference count on the number of times that interrupts have been disabled. And this comes into play for the functions IRQ disable and IRQ enable, which are the other two utility functions that I find useful. So IRQ disable disables interrupts and IRQ enable re-enables them. Now there's no need to call either of these functions when you're in an interrupt handler as a rule. If you want to, then you're probably doing something wrong. Uh, but for regular code that may be sharing data structures with interrupts, you do want to be able to disable and enable interrupts when you are modifying those shared data structures in a non-atomic way so that you can ensure that the data structures remain in a consistent state. Now, unfortunately, it's all too easy to screw up when enabling and disabling interrupts. For example, you could have a function that disables interrupts, and then it calls another function that goes and disables interrupts, 
and then after it's done it goes and re-enables them. Now interrupts are enabled if you are just thinking of them as a light switch where you just turn them on and off, but the original function assumed that they were disabled, and that's a problem. So IRQ enable and disable in this library uh, use a, a reference count to make sure that one only re-enables interrupts when the last party that disabled them enables them. So the count starts at 1 when the software begins because interrupts are disabled by default. And then if you re-enable interrupts, it drops that count to 0. It says, oh, they're 0 now, so now I can re-enable the interrupts. Okay, now interrupts are enabled. Now the next time one goes and disables interrupts, Try it. it'll disable the interrupts first and then it will increment that count and if they get disabled again then the count will go up to two and then maybe three and the interrupts will actually only get re-enabled then when the IRQ enable is called three times so that makes it a little safer to do your appropriate enabling and disabling to protect data structures you don't have to worry about nesting cases okay so I think that covers the basics of how one can deal with interrupts in general. So now let's talk about how uh, one can use the interrupt facilities to drive the full UART in the Raspberry Pi. Okay. You may recall from the previous podcast that the way the serial code works right now is that whenever you without interrupts is that whenever you want to send a byte you go and you check to see whether the transmit queue is full and if it is you either have to return and say I wasn't able to send it or you have to spin and wait until that thing is no longer full and then put your byte onto the queue. And similarly when you want to receive a byte you have to spin and wait waiting to see if that receive queue is empty until it becomes non-empty and then read the next byte off of the the queue. And you also have to remember of course to be servicing that queue in a timely manner uh, otherwise it's possible that the queue could back up and data could be lost so that's uh, also not very useful. Well with interrupts we can add a little more buffering into this into the system. We can have a, a data structure that stores the data that is pending to be transmitted and as the transmit queue empties an interrupt can fire and the interrupt handler can then copy data out of the transmit buffer into the into the transmit queue similarly on receive whenever new data becomes available it can the interrupt can fire and the receive code can copy a bunch of the data into the receive queue and the rest of the program has more leeway to pull it off when needed. Okay, I, in my example, am configuring the interrupts to fire on transmit when the transmit FIFO becomes half empty, and I am having it fire on receive when the receive FIFO becomes half full or it times out. Meaning, if you get one byte and it just sits there for a while, it'll eventually time out and the, the interrupt will still fire. Okay, so you may recall 
the function that one uses to send on the in uh, my version of the code is called RPI UART send. But the interrupt enabled version of this works a little differently. First, it disables interrupts, and it's doing that because it's going to be operating on a data structure that it shares with the interrupt handler. Next, it copies characters that are to be sent into the TX buffer until it has copied all of them or until the buffer is full. It's going to remember how many it copied and return that number so that the caller can make sure that it wrote them all or send the rest later. Then it calls the UART TX FIFO fill function, which will try to fill as much of the data out of the TX buffer into the, into the send FIFO, the TX FIFO. And this just makes sure that that TX FIFO is at least half full if there is data to if there's data to fill it with so that when the TX FIFO drains the interrupt will actually fire and more of the TX data that we have queued up can be copied into it finally after it's finished with that it re-enables the interrupts and it returns the total number of bytes that it originally copied into the TX FIFO into the TX buffer sorry RPI UART receive is kind of a similar mirror uh, operation. First it disables interrupts, again for the same reason, to preserve the integrity of the shared data structure. Then it copies out the current receive status into a globally accessible byte just in case or the rest of the software wants to check for any error conditions on the wire. Next, it copies data that the interrupt handler has put into the read buffer into the caller's waiting buffer for the actual received data until it either has received as much as the caller asked for or until it has emptied the read buffer. Finally it re-enables interrupts and it returns the number of bytes that it has copied out. The next piece of the puzzle is the RPI underscore UART underscore IRQ underscore F function that is the actual interrupt handler that will actually get invoked when either the RX or TX interrupt occurs. And it itself is a short function. It calls UART RX FIFO drain and UART TX FIFO fill. And after that it clears any pending interrupts by writing to the appropriate peripheral control status register say okay I have finished handling interrupts for the UART okay. now uh, UART TX FIFO fill we've seen already what it does again is it fills the TX FIFO with data to be transmitted until the TX FIFO is full or until there's no more data to transmit UART RX FIFO drain is again a, a sort of mirror image of that it just while the receive FIFO is not empty copies data out of the receive FIFO and into the receive buffer and of course later on software will call RPI UART receive to copy that data out of the read buffer later okay the last function in my UART code is the RPI UART init function. Now we've seen this before, but you'll find that when it is 
used with interrupts, it's a little bit different. When the pound define uart underscore use underscore irq is a non-zero value, then it does a bunch of extra steps. Uh, first, it initializes the rx and tx buffers just mentioned above and their head and tail pointers. Next, it writes ones to the rx, tx, and rx timer bits of the interrupt mask control register, and that essentially enables the interrupts. So that basically is telling the system, okay, I do care about rx interrupts for the uart, I do care about tx interrupts for the uart, and I do care about rx timer interrupts. In other words, I want the uart to interrupt me if any of those conditions occur. Now, what we find from the from the data book is that the uart's interrupt number, by the way, is 57. So that puts the interrupt for the uart in the IRQ pending register 2 at bit position 25, that is 57 minus 32. So in order to check for whether that interrupt fired, the IRQ underscore U underscore handler is going to do a find first set on the IRQ pending register 2, and it's going to see bit number 25 set, and it's going to realize, ah, that's interrupt number 57, so I'll go to the 57th interrupt handler, and that's where we it will find a pointer to RPI UART IRQF, and it will invoke that function, uh, leading to our interrupt handling as mentioned above. Okay. Finally, the RPI UART init will enable the receive and transmit FIFOs so that uh, it can actually buffer up transmitted and received bytes, which it is, did not do in the non-interrupt mode. So in non-interrupt mode, that FIFO ends up just being one character deep. But since we want to let the UART transmit and receive in bulk, we're going to enable the FIFOs to be, in this case, 16 characters deep, which is the other setting. Okay, and of course, uh, in the process of doing that, because it happens to be in the same control status register, we still set it to use 8-bit bytes with one stop bit and no parity. The last step that the RPI UART init function performs is to enable uh, IRQ57 in the Raspberry Pi's interrupt enable register. So now the UART is fully able to actually generate the interrupts. The sequence of functions that one should call during initialization is uh, first IRQ init, then one should call the RPI UART init, and during all of this time, interrupts are still disabled. And finally, after all of that and any other calls that one wants to make during initialization while interrupts are disabled, uh, that should go somewhere in the middle between those two. And finally, one calls IRQ enable to rearm interrupts and allow the interrupt handlers to function. Now, in the cat RPI repository, there is a program serial1 under the apps slash serial1 directory, 
and that program is almost identical to serial zero. In fact, I believe the main function is identical to serial zero. The only difference between the two is whether the build flag specifies to define UART use IRQ as zero or one. So one of those operates on the serial port without interrupts and one of them operates on the serial port with interrupts. To build it you just need the ARM compiler, linker, bin utils, etc. to be in your path and you should just be able to type make. There should be no external dependencies for that program. Alright, uh, we've talked now about some little you know, fun uh, basics in a chip, how to deal with interrupts. Uh, and we've talked about saving state and restoring state. We're actually starting to get to the base concepts that one builds in a minimalist operating system. So let's talk about another one, one that will make our lives a little bit easier, and that is loading new code to execute. Uh, by now, if you've been playing with your Raspberry Pi and doing bare metal programs, and you have been following along my examples and waiting eagerly for me to get to this point in the podcast, then you've been pulling your SD card in and out of your Raspberry Pi quite a lot. At least I know I was doing that at the beach while I was uh, doing this on vacation uh, until I got to this point. And uh, it, I was getting a little bit worried about it, to, to be honest. Uh, but uh, once again, hats off to dwelt 67 he had an idea for a better way, which was to create a simple loader that one could use over the serial port to load your code, to, to load programs directly into memory over the serial port using the Xmodem protocol. So uh, I dug out a search engine, looked for the Xmodem protocol, and found that it is deliberately simplistic and thus easy to implement, and so proceeded to write a little loader program that will allow one to send a binary file over the serial port, and it will dump this binary file starting at address 65536 until the file ends, and then the loader is able from there to immediately jump control into that first instruction and start it running. Much like the bootloader did for our code, loading our code at hex 8000. Okay. But now we can specify our programs without having to have them live on the flash drive. So if you look in the directory apps slash loader, you will see another C program written for bare metal on the Raspberry Pi that is my interpretation of how one should do all of this. And it's probably the lengthiest of the programs, uh, well it's by far lengthier than the ones that I've shown so far. If you read the code you'll find that it is doing some you know, basic I.O. over the serial port, it is reading commands and dispatching them. It itself can take one, two, three, four, five, six, seven basic little commands and run them. The first command is useful for debugging. It's R followed by a hex address and that just reads a hex address in memory and writes the uh, value stored there out to 
the serial ports and then similarly there's W for writing a word to memory so it takes an address and then a value so you between the two of them you have now peek and poke over the serial bus if you want it next uh, more interestingly is the X command which does the aforementioned Xmodem protocol and will download whatever you send it by the Xmodem protocol to address 65536. The S command is what you would usually run immediately following the X command. It basically just jumps right to address 65536 and starts executing. So you could theoretically load your program into memory by using a series of write operations, W operations, uh, but uh, what I would usually do is while I'm playing with my code, when I'm first playing with a piece of code just to make sure that the loader was working, I would use X to download the program in and then I'd use read to the read command to make sure that it looked like the, the program was loaded successfully and then again you use the S command immediately to jump to that uh, starting address and start running. Uh, there's also a T command to grab the current time from the system clock that was just a little fun exercise that I threw in there and there's the E command that prints out any Xmodem error status that might have occurred and then there's the question mark or help which prints out the menu of commands. It's noteworthy that this loader uses the serial port but does not use interrupts for its serial port management and that deliberate choice is so that when the loaded program starts it gets the arm in a much more unconfigured state i.e. it doesn't have to worry that there are already interrupt vectors and handlers enabled and so forth. None of those will be present yet. So it becomes up to that program that is loaded to do all the proper initializations. Okay, I'll talk now briefly about the Xmodem protocol itself that we will use to transfer over the serial line and it's a very simple program and it's driven by the receiver okay the receiver sends NAC bytes or ACK bytes saying I have or I haven't received the next block okay so when you start up the Xmodem protocol the receiver just starts sending NAC bytes every once in a while say okay send me the next block send me the next block okay and then the sender will send a block and it will wait for the receiver to either send an ACK or a NAC. If it gets an ACK, it'll send the next block and the next block and the next block. If it gets a NAC, it will resend the block that it just sent until the receiver says, okay, send the next one. Finally, when the sender is out of things to send, instead of sending a block, it will send an end of transmission byte, which the receiver, when it receives, will go, oh, okay you've sent me everything, I'm done. Okay, It's a very simplistic little stop-and-wait protocol. It has a minimal checksum protection, no protection for the control bits in the packets, um, and 
it has no sliding window protocol, so it's not very fast, but it's very simple. And that's, uh, if you look at the history of the protocol, the author deliberately left it that way so that it was easy for everybody to implement. So that made it simple enough for me to do a poor implementation in the source slash xmodem.c file in the cat RPI directory. A little bit more about the protocol. Um, each block that the sender sends is 128 bytes. The first byte is the command byte, which will usually be either here is some data or here's the end of transmission. And if it's end of transmission, then it's you don't send uh, anything else. That's just it. That's the end. But as long as that command is SOH, the start of handling, or uh, I forget what SOH stands for, but that's the, the command for the start of the next block, then after that first byte, there is the block number that is being sent in, byte, uh, in the second byte, and the inverse of the block number that's being sent for the second byte, and then 128 bytes of data, and then finally a one-byte checksum, which is just the sum of the 128 bytes of data. Okay. So the sender will, for each, every 128 bytes that it wants to send, it'll send the command, then block number, then minus the negative of the block number, each is individual bytes, then the 128 bytes of data, and then a one-byte sum of the 128 bytes of data. And the receiver will receive that and say, oh, okay, here's a real frame. Does the block number match what I'm expecting? And if so, then okay, I'll receive the data and then I will check the checksum to see if it's correct. If the checksum fails or if the block number isn't what I'm expecting, I'll send a NAC, but if it's okay, I'll send a NAC. And that is the X-Modem protocol in a nutshell. And it's, uh, so it was very easy to implement an ad for purposes of loading. So, now we have the outline of a loader. Uh, there's just one little further detail that needs to go into our build process in order to make it ready to be able to write bare metal code that is going to be loaded by our loader instead of loaded by the bootloader that pulls from the flash drive. Any code that will get loaded at 65536 instead of 32768 you know, has to know that that's where it's getting loaded. Uh, so, in order to handle this case, what I did was, in, instead of having static linker scripts that always loaded code at the same offset, uh, I created a little shell script in script slash ldmm.sh that uh, generates an appropriate linker script given a starting offset passed to it as an environment variable or a parameter, I forget which offhand, and the length of the m memory to use. Okay, so so then I can write the same program and I can compile it with the offset 32768 if I want to just put it in the kernel.image file on the flash drive, or I can set the starting offset to 65536 if I want it to be able to be loaded by our little minimalist loader. That's one step in making our code loadable. The other step is, again, 
some of the code, and really it's only one tiny part, uh, needs to know where the actual program is going to live in memory when it arrives. And that piece of the program is the very first bit of the core.s file, the instructions that copy the interrupt vector to address 0. They need to know uh, where they're copying from. So, in the assembly file, you'll see that the very first instruction executed is move r0 pound origin. Now, pound origin is a symbol, a symbolic name that the assembler can substitute for a number. So, in our assembly line on the command line, we have to say dash dash defsym space origin equals 0x800 0 if we want to basically tell the code, okay, you're going to be loaded at hex uh, at hex 8000. That would be the case for if we wanted the code to be loaded by the bootloader of the GPU. If we want to recompile the code so that it is retargeted for 65536, then our assembly line has to define the symbol origin to be 65536 instead. Uh, in general, you can't <coughs> change origin to be just any value because only certain immediate values can be used in the move command to put directly into registers from the contents of the instruction. The value, the number, must be one that can be represented by an 8-bit number rotated in even number of bit positions and possibly negated. So that set of numbers are the numbers that you can copy, that you can put immediately into a register as opposed to copying from a, some other memory location. Okay. Other than that, uh, we don't need any, any special facilities in the build process in order to build the same programs to be able to run either starting from the loader or starting from the flash drive the core.s file that gets linked into the program in either case will always reinitialize the exception vector on start and on reset and it will always reinitialize the stack pointers for the interrupt handler for the supervisor and so forth and each time it will recall the the main function in the loader the loaded programs case it'll call the main function from the loaded program and the loader itself, of course, has its own main function. These are not going to collide because there are no symbols when you get into raw memory. There's just instructions. Okay? So that, that's how one creates uh, loadable code. Now, uh, if you want an example of using loadable code, we can go to the program apps slash serial2 or apps slash serial 3, or apps slash timer 1, or more that uh, should be in there that we'll go over in future episodes as well. And those programs are all directly loadable by our little loader and runnable from there. Uh, for each one of those programs, you can build them just by entering their subdirectory and typing make. No external dependencies there. So, just as a quick 
recap, if you want to run a program that is loaded by the loader program, here's how you go about it. First, you have to build the loader. So go into apps slash loader and just type make. That should produce a loader.bin file. Next, plug in your SD card that you're going to boot the Raspberry Pi from and copy loader.bin over kernel.img as I described in the last episode. You only have to do these steps once. After this, all of your other programs will just be loading from that same SD card all the time. Okay, then you go to the application that you want to load and say that might be cd to apps slash serial2. You type make to build that. Okay, now you have a serial2.bin file. Now, the next thing that you do is you plug your SD card back into the Raspberry Pi. Make sure that you have your serial connection hooked up as described in part one of this and have Minicom running so that when the loader boots you'll, you will see the, the uh, program running and then turn on the Raspberry Pi. You'll see the loader menu come up and at that point you can issue the X command so you just type X in return and that will cause the loader to start its end of the X modem protocol where it will wait for you to send the file. Now you use Minicom's uh, X modem protocol to send the serial to dot bin files. So the way you do that is you type control A and then the S key and then it will give you a menu of choices of protocols so you select the X modem protocol and then it will give you a directory listing and you have to navigate to your serial2.bin file and you select it and it should send it over the serial line via the X modem protocol and then you'll see hopefully a transfer complete message and then after that you can just hit return a few times to get back to the menu and that means that the loader has loaded your program into memory if you want you can use the read command to poke around and uh, peek around in memory and see if uh, it's really there but anyways if you just want to run it just type the s command and that will kick your program off and running okay so I think I've covered enough in this episode to give more details on how one is dealing with systems issues in the Raspberry Pi. At this point, I'm going to uh, end this episode. If you want to get in contact with me, you can email me, as always, at evenfire at sdf.org or leave comments on HPR on the website. I'd love to hear from you guys, whether this is useful or interesting, or what other topics you might want me to cover. The third part in this series I've already got mapped out, I think. It will be the next step that I took during summer vacation, and that was to take some of my libraries and make sure that they could run in bare metal on the Raspberry Pi. Uh, These are libraries that are designed to work in both application and embedded environments, so this was intended to be a good test. And then, after that, I will discuss 
how to enable the memory management unit and caching in the Raspberry Pi. And from one of the programs, hopefully, that you will see in that episode, you'll see that it makes a substantial difference in terms of the performance of the software. just shows you how a modern architecture needs to do an enormous amount of work to make our programs really fly. So all of that is what's coming up. Uh, I hope you guys are enjoying this, and I hope to hear from lots of you soon. Have a good one. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.